No one knows what hell is like. Someone said, nobody's ever been there and come back to tell us what it's like. Well, that's not true. Your substitute has been there and come back to tell us what it's like. If you want to know what hell is like, you need to watch the middle cross. If you're just joining us today, we've been working on a series, <coughs> excuse me, of messages on the seven cries from the cross. This morning, we will deal with number four, God willing. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. <coughs> Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> I'll begin reading in verse 29. Please watch your Bibles. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, Save thyself, and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Verse 33. <clears throat> and when the sixth hour was come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <clears throat> In the order, I believe we have it right. I stand to be corrected. In the order, I believe this is number four. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The answer to the appeal of one of the criminals to be remembered when he came into his kingdom, to him he said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Then, woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple that he loved, behold thy mother. The first three. Let me suggest that in our time frame, the Lord Jesus was probably raised on the cross about nine o'clock in the morning. And these first three cries from the cross happened probably between nine o'clock and twelve o'clock. Because around twelve o'clock, when the sun should be in its strength, we read the whole land was full of darkness. The scene now changes. 
the mocking, frenzied, accusing crowd now has a hush. Perhaps all they can hear is the heavy breathing and the groanings of those that were being crucified. It's an unnatural darkness. Three hours, we read, from the sixth hour, noon, to the ninth hour, approximately three o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> Some say that this cry from the cross was because he was delirious by now and he was confused and he's just repeating something he learned as a child from Psalm 22. Some suggest that because of the pain and the agony, that he accuses the Father. The suffering forced it from his lips. It is said that Martin Luther once set himself <coughs> to, <coughs> to study the seven sayings. He positioned himself without food in long meditation in one position. And then was heard to exclaim this, God, forsaking God. Who could understand that? Folks, that's where we are this morning. Who can understand this? Too deep, too divine. God pulled the curtain. Man may have seen what man did. <clears throat> no human eye, perhaps no divine eye would now see. I do not in any way want to diminish the physical suffering of our Lord. I was part. But the spiritual suffering now, we cannot see. We can imagine, we can compare Scripture with Scripture, but only God and His Son knows what went on in those dark hours. In order to try to understand this, let's put ourselves in this position. Let's suppose that there is someone <clears throat> other than the Lord Jesus at this point, someone who's absolutely perfect, sinless, never made a mistake, but for some reason they are taken and judged like a common criminal before God. The first thing you would say is, that's not fair. They didn't do anything wrong. That's not fair. In our language today, you'd say, he was set up. <laughs> he didn't do it. They, it only looked like he did it. We would say, you got the wrong man. We don't have the wrong man. And he wasn't set up. This is God's divine plan 
Let me suggest three areas that we'll look at this morning from this cry. <clears throat> First of all, the sacrifice of Christ himself. Secondly, the torments of hell that are pictured from this cry. And then, the wrath of God on his own son. First of all, the sacrifice of Christ himself. As we think about the scene, we've already talked about the darkness. Let me suggest for you that darkness, in most cases in the Scriptures, represents sin. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. It was after the three hours of darkness, that is, at the end, I think Matthew says about the end, when we read it here, Mark says at the ninth hour, he cries. Three hours of darkness has passed. It is silent. There's no recording of any conversation or any sayings. At the end of that darkness, and we believe, that is, we assume that after he makes what some have called the orphan cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The light comes back. There's light again. And he will again speak from the cross three more statements. Now we know that the Sabbath is drawing nigh. By six o'clock that night, by sundown, their Sabbath would start. This is approximately three o'clock in the afternoon. He is still on the cross. There's an urgency here. Things have to be settled. Things have to be finished. We've, we've got to deal with this issue. And so we would say there's only approximately three hours for him to repeat the last three cries, for him to give his life a ransom for many, for Joseph and Nicodemus to come and get the body and prepare the body as best they could and get it in the grave by 6 o'clock, the tomb. The darkness. God hid what he was doing to his son from man. The distance, someone has said, about the distance that the Lord came. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes we try, at least scientists today, and I appreciate this, I don't know much about it, but I appreciate that they try to describe distance in light years. You say, how far did he come? <laughs> how many light years away was he when he traveled to earth to come to be the sacrifice for our sins. Well, he travels at the speed of omnipresence. I don't know how far he came. But he came. The one who ascended is the one who descended to the lowest parts of the earth. And how far he came, I don't know, but the destiny was Calvary. He had to go all the way to Calvary. He couldn't just come and be born in Bethlehem. He couldn't just grow up in Joseph's carpenter shop. He couldn't just, at 12 years old, go to the temple and confound the doctors and the religious leaders. He couldn't just have a public ministry and heal the people and raise the dead. He could have done that and gone home, but he didn't. He had to go all the way. 
How far did he come? He came all the way to God forsakenness. That's how far he came. The distance. The day, interesting day. You know, once a year in the life of an Israelite was the Day of Atonement. Great day. They loved that day. You can read about it in Leviticus 16, the tenth day, the seventh month. They were there that day, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would order two goats. One goat was killed. The blood was shed. The other goat was brought to the high priest, and he took his hands and he laid it on the head of the live goat. We remember that as the scapegoat. And he confessed the sins of Israel, symbolically transferring the sins of Israel from the people to the live goat. And then the scriptures say that that live goat was sent away by the hand of a fit man and released into the wilderness. Many pictures there. I want you to think about the sins are gone. That's a great picture. That the scapegoat becomes the one now who bears the sins of Israel and the sins are gone into the wilderness. But let me ask you a question. How long do you think a domestic goat would last in the wilderness? He wouldn't make daylight, folks. The wild beast would tear him apart. You see, it was at a time like this at Calvary when the Scriptures remind us that God laid His hand On his own son. And the iniquity of us all was laid on him. And he bore those sins in the wilderness of the wrath of God. The day of atonement. I am so glad that the blood of Jesus Christ never atoned for sin. I'm so glad. You see, atonement means to cover. And if the blood of Jesus Christ only covered sin, what would happen 400 million years from now in eternity if something uncovered it? <laughs> but it's gone, folks. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. It is not there. It is gone. The day. The despair or the depth of sin. You know, the, the Scriptures put it like this. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. <clears throat> Please don't get your theology mixed up. He didn't sin. But God treated him like a sinner. He assumed the position of the sinner. He's your substitute. <clears throat> God has an exchange pro program. Listen to it. He says, I'll take your sin and give you my righteousness. 
the, the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hey, you can't get it any better than that. God's exchange program. You see, you can become something you never were, righteous, because he became something he never was, sinful. God treated him as a sinner. God made him the representative for all mankind. He bore your sins in his own body on the tree. What sins, you might say? All. We categorize sins. Let me tell you, the Lord Jesus paid for the sin of fornication. Did you know that? He never committed fornication, but he paid for that sin because he became sin for you. Or adultery, or idolatry, or sorcery, or strife, or jealousy, or drunkenness, or murder, or adultery, or uncleanliness, or hate, or revilers, or thieves, or lying, or pride. You name it, you fill in the blank. He became sin and God judged him as a sinner. How far did he go? To be forsaken of his God. Oh, one last point, the dangers of it all. <clears throat> you ever see this nice picture? It, it is the good shepherd on the side of a mountain reaching down with his staff or his hand uh, with the uh, predator eagles flying over, the wild beasts hiding in the bushes, and this a uh, little crippled lamb with a broken leg, and the good shepherd is taking him and putting him on his shoulders and bringing him home. It's a beautiful picture. The problem is we focus on the lamb and not the shepherd. Esau Fain penned these words, but none of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found the sheep that was lost. The cost of the shepherd to find the sheep and bring him home. And then there's the torments of hell pictured in this, cry, in, in this saying, this cry. The old uh, uh, Irishman put it like this, he swapped with me. <laughs> he took my place, my substitute, endured the torments of hell. <clears throat> I could be wrong here, folks, I don't know. But I believe during the three hours of darkness, God compresses that into eternal separation, and that's where our Lord Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. The nature of this torment is seen in the phrase, Why hast thou forsaken me? First of all, the question, why? Why? <clears throat> when you consider this torment of being forsaken, let me remind you that this is what every Christ rejecter can look forward to. 
Some have suggested the why seems hopeless or helpless, the, the cry of a baffled heart. No light at the end. Uh, I can't see through the maze. I don't know where I'm going. I'm disoriented. I'm disorganized. The unanswered question forever. No voice from heaven. Earth offers no help like a tormenting nightmare. And there's no dawn. There's no morning. It's over. Why? 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 He cried. He demonstrates in real life agony what every sinner will experience who refuses salvation through his blood. You want to go it alone? This is what awaits you. In that day you will know why God forsakes you because you have rejected his son. And by the way, let me say for all of eternity, you will remember that moment, that hour, this day, this session, this week. And you can say for all of eternity, only if I would have, it will haunt you. And then, why hast thou forsaken me? Some have suggested that the word forsaken is the saddest word in any language. You ever been forsaken? It comes in the original language from three words. Let me give them to you. First, to leave means to abandon. Secondly, comes from the word down, D-O-W-N, suggesting defeat and helplessness. Thirdly, the preposition in, referring to place, circumstances, time, or the state of a person. We put them all together, this is what we get. The combined meaning forsaking is abandoning someone in a state of defeat or helplessness in the midst of hostile circumstances. Let me, let me read it again. Abandoning someone in a state of defeat or helplessness in the midst of hostile circumstances. Many years ago when I was in Bible school, I had the privilege of pastoring, I suppose would be the right word, a little church about two and a half hours away. They had no pastor. And so my wife and I would go down on a Friday night and we'd have a prayer meeting. Mike would have, they had prayer meetings. And the prayer meetings were well attended. Then Saturday, we would have uh, a youth meeting. And then Sunday, I would teach Sunday school, and then I would preach the morning meeting, and then I would preach the night meeting, and then Monday morning I would meet with the older group of young people before breakfast, and we would have a time of Bible study and devotion, and then I'd go back to school for the week. We did that for a whole year. We got to know those people and appreciate those people. One of the families in that little congregation were commercial fishermen. You might know that on Lake Huron in the winter that 
the temperatures drop so low that on occasion a lake as big as Lake Huron completely freezes. You say, well, you couldn't fish in the winter. Well, you actually you can commercially fish in the winter if you know how to do it. You drill holes in the ice. There is a design and a net that it actually has buoys on it. You shove it into the hole, and as it pops back up to the ice underneath the ice, uh, you give it a pull, and it walks across the bottom of the ice, and you can string a net for, I don't know, yards and yards and yards. And so they would put their nets out, then they would come back, open the holes up, bring their nets back, and they could commercial fish in the winter. Sometimes the lake doesn't completely freeze over. Or sometimes there's shifts, and the ice opens up, and then there's a, <clears throat> a light freeze and a snow. And as you look, it all looks the same, but it's not all the same. This man had two sons. They helped him as they fished. One particular morning, they suited up. They got on their snow machines. They got their gear, their little trailers they pulled behind. And normally, they would wear survival suits when they go out. It's only precaution. Even with a survival suit, if you go into that frigid water, it's not that you drown. It's just that hypothermia kicks in, your body temperature lowers. You can't even hold on anymore. A survival suit will give you maybe 15 minutes before that happens. If you don't have a survival suit on, you, you have about six minutes, I think, before that happens. One of the boys didn't put his suit on that morning. The three of them on snow machines were going. The, the young man who didn't have his suit on was in the lead. He ran into thin ice. His machine went through. He cries for help. They stop back because they know they can't drive on that thin ice. The father made a decision. They had a long rope for the net. He took that rope and he tied it to the waist of his other son. And he said, you go as fast as you can. You try to reach your brother, and I will pull you both back. He tried as best he could to get to his brother who had gone through, but his machine went through before he reached his brother. The father pulled that son back, and there was nothing they could do. The other brother perished that day. But they tried everything to reach him. They could not reach him. They would never forsake him. You put yourself in that situation. As the ice broke, as they tried to get closer and closer, they could not, but they tried. What would you think of a father whose son was in a, a hostile situation that says, well... I'm just going to leave him. You couldn't do that. Please listen to me. God did. God did. He left his son. 
he abandoned his son. He forsook his son. Anybody ever ask you the question, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow tsunamis? Why does God allow terrorist attacks? Why does God allow little children to starve? Why does God, if there's a loving God, kind and, and forgiving and merciful and gracious, why does God allow that? Folks, I don't know. But I got another question. <clears throat> why did God allow His Son to be taken by an angry mob and beat unrecognizable, rejected and spit on and killed? Where's God? You see, <clears throat> sin separates us from God, and when God laid on Him the iniquity of us all, and the Lord Jesus became sin for us, God's got to do it. He can't show favoritism. This is one great proof for me that there's only one way to heaven through Jesus. One great proof. Because if God would not withhold judgment from His own Son, do you think He'll withhold it from you? Jesus had known before what forsakenness meant. His family, his hometown, Nazareth, his nation, his people, Israel, his disciples even, certainly the crowds, the mocking crowds. He had known that. However, he could always depend on his Father. I mean, in occasions, angels were sent <laughs> to minister to him. But now heaven is brass, no help, no one, on your own, forsaken, despised, if you please, because He's taken your sin and mine. This forsakenness awaits everyone who rejects the Savior. You want to be alone? God will leave you alone separated forever from God. God is good, there'll be no good. God is light, there'll be no light. God is love, there'll be no love. God is life, there'll be no life. Deprived of everything but death. Eternal death. Separation. No escape from the pain, the sorrow, the disappointment, the frustration, the despair, all of the horrors of hell await you because you will not have Him. You can cry for a million years. There won't be anybody there to answer. Nobody bring a drop of water for your parched tongue. No matter who you are, educated or ignorant, Cultured, refined, sensitive, good, drunken, harlot, criminal. No distinction there. They, they're all Christ rejectors. Nobody wants the payment the Lord Jesus has made. They all have one thing in common. They did not want Him. 
and then the wrath of God. The wrath of God now is poured out on his own son. God's forever settling the question. He puts it on the big screen. He says, now watch the middle cross because this is what happens to sinners. I have to turn my back. I have to reject them. They are separated from me for all of eternity. I want you to think about the cross perhaps in this way this morning. The cross is a picture of judgment. <laughs> when the Lord Jesus was um, explaining the new birth to Nicodemus, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Did you ever ask yourself the question, how could a snake represent Jesus? So, in Numbers 21, children of Israel are, I don't know, Mike, if you're going there, but the children of Israel are marching on to Canaan and because of disobedience, they murmured against God. They murmured against Moses. They didn't like the way they were led, and they didn't like the way they were fed. And so the Bible is very clear. God sent fiery serpents among the people. It was retribution. It was judgment. And the people cried to Moses, pray that God would take the serpents away. So Moses pr prayed, and God says, no, we're not taking the serpents away, but you make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole in the midst of the camp, and anyone who looks at the serpent of brass that has been bitten by uh, a serpent will be healed. I don't know how long it takes to make a serpent of brass, but people are dropping everywhere in the camp. Finally, they get it. They put it on the pole. It was a serpent. Therefore, there was the reminder of sin. Someone said when you say the word serpent, you can hear the hiss. And when you say sin, you can almost feel the bite. The serpent represented sin. But he's made out of brass. Brass in the Scripture represents judgment. Even the picture of the Lord Jesus, His feet like burnished brass stomping in judgment. What's the picture? Sin being judged. Don't make it hard. In the wilderness, we got a serpent of brass. At Calvary, we've got the Lord Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent, the Lord Jesus has to be lifted up. A picture of sin being judged. A picture of sin being judged. God judging His own Son for you. Judgment Day. You see, the judge is going to be the one who was judged. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. Wherefore, He gives assurance unto all men in that He has raised Him from the dead. He will sit on the throne and judge. What does this cry mean to me today? If I'm a believer, 
If I know the Lord Jesus, I need to fall on my face. You talked about, Mike, you talked about getting on our knees. I'll ask you a question. When is the last time you got on your knees? When is the last time your assembly got on their knees? You say, well now, Brother Joe, we, we, we don't do that in our assemblies. Why not? It shows humility. It shows respect. It shows dependence. We ought to fall on our faces today, folks. I, I don't know what's wrong with us. Here's the one who took my sin in his body on the tree, and God poured out his wrath and his judgment on his own son, and I walk free, and I go, thanks a lot, God. That's great. Thank you. I can't believe that we would have that attitude. you're here today and you don't know the Lord, please watch the middle cross because that is your future. Could I steal a phrase from Amos? Prepare to meet your God. And then could I take a, a, a verse that's often uh, used in the gospel, but it's for believers. How shall we escape giving an account to God if we neglect so great salvation? Let's pray. Father, what could we possibly say A thousand, a thousand thanksgivings. We don't even know how to say it. We probably don't think about it very much. We're just glad to be in the family of God. And we forget the cost, the dark night the Good Shepherd went through to find the lost sheep. Forsaken of God. Father, in these days, in these hours that we might have left, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, take the simplicity of what we have heard and profoundly apply it to our hearts. For Christ's sake. Amen.